Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Future generations may well have occasion to ask themselves, what were our parents thinking? Why didn't they wake up when they had a chance? What do we owe future generations? Is it possible to have obligations to people who don't even exist yet? Are we morally responsible for the world that future generations inherit? We have to hear that question from them now. Every generation blames the one before. If you can't help all those now in need around the world, what makes you think you can help future generations? So let's all help keep Bigfoot possibly alive for future generations to enjoy unless he doesn't exist. Our guest is Raul Kumar from Queens University. What do we owe future generations? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. How much should we care about future generations? Shouldn't we care as much about them as we do for ourselves? Why not just live it up and let the people of the future sort it out? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ken teaches philosophy and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. And today our conversation centers on what do we owe to future generations? That's like asking what we owe Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. They, they don't exist. Oh, Josh, future generations don't exist yet. I'll grant you that, but they will eventually. Isn't it up to us whether they exist or not? Oh, God, Josh, like, well, you think we're going to just someday collectively up and decide no more people to come? That would be a disaster. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not advocating human extinction. Oh, I'm glad of that, Josh. I'm really glad. <laughs> I'm, just making, I'm just making a logical point. The logical point is this. Look, if we don't owe it to future generations even to bring them into existence, how can we owe them anything at all? Well, because uh, choices have consequences, Mr. Logic. Look, I'm going to grant you, maybe my parents didn't precisely owe it to me to bring me into existence. But, you know, once they decided they were eventually going to have a kid... They weren't just free to squander all their resources anymore. But exactly how much of the resources should they have saved up for you? I mean, maybe they were right not to buy a yacht or something, but, but what if they took evening classes or went to the theater? You know, things that contributed to their happiness and flourishing. Would you retrospectively begrudge them that? Well, it depends. I might. I might well if their profligacy had made the future me permanently worse off. You bet I would. And look, if we don't take care of the planet now, future generations that will someday inherit this thing will definitely have the right to look back at us and say, oh, we're pissed off at you, past people. <laughs> but, but what if your, you know, what if fear of, of, of future righteous anger like that had caused your parents not to have a child at all. Would you like that better? Well, Josh, oh, come on. In that case, I wouldn't even be around to complain about it, would I? Well, exactly. You're making my point for me. <laughs> what, what point is that, Josh? The point is, it's not your parents who owe you. It's you who owe them. Oh, I owe them. For what? Doing their duty as future parents? It wasn't their duty, Ken. Look, deciding to have a child... Making sacrifices for that future child even before it's conceived? These are acts of charity. It, charity? It, 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 yeah, it's, it's like a gift. I mean, it's just you're just making a mistake in thinking of our relations to people of the future in terms of duties. Wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
suppose, just for supposition's sake, that we lay complete waste to this planet. Are you denying that people of the future would be within their rights to look back at us and say, look, past people, given that you despoiled our planet, why did you even bother bringing us into existence? Well, then we say back to them, would you rather not exist? Oh, and what if they said back to us, you know what, under these circumstances, we would rather not have existed. So we're suing you, past people. We're taking you to the court of intergenerational justice for wrongful existence. So let me see if I have you right here, Ken. Now you're saying we might have an obligation not to bring future people into existence? No. I'm saying we have an absolute duty to the future people not to ruin their future planet. Even if you're right, there's a huge difference between leaving them a ruined planet and leaving one that's got, you know, a little wear and tear, a planet that's been lovingly used. (laughs) What, What are you talking lovingly used? What are you talking about? Well, what I'm trying to say is this. The real question comes down to how much we should sacrifice for the sake of future generations. I mean, sh- should we live like monks so that they can live a life of plenty? No, no, I wouldn't say that. I, no, no, no. That would imply that people of the future count more than us. I, I didn't say that, and I wouldn't say that. Well, do they even count the same as us? What, you, you think they count less than us? Well, at least a little less. I mean, we have real, concrete, urgent interests. I mean, think of all the people starving right now across the globe. Whereas the interests of future people, they're, you know, abstract and hypothetical. You know what? That's just the kind of attitude that explains our lack of action on things like climate change. Oh, don't get me wrong. I'm all for combating climate change. Absolutely. I just don't think it's obvious how much weight we should give to the well-being of hypothetical future people as opposed to our own. Well, okay, Josh, you know what? That's an interesting question, and I agree, it, and it's a challenging one. And to help us get started thinking about it, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to take a look at the history of our thinking about climate change and its impact on future generations. She files this report. United Nations scientists say that we have 12 years left to avoid climate catastrophe. And even that would take a miracle. Celebrity naturalist David Attenborough pleaded for action during the recent UN climate summit in Poland. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. But in the run-up to the climate summit, President Donald Trump spoke with 60 Minutes correspondent Leslie Stahl. I'm not denying climate change. But it could very well go back. You know, we're talking about well, over that's millions of years. Some scientists say we're better off focusing on colonizing other planets to survive as a species. But author and journalist Nathaniel Rich says that 30 years ago, we had a real shot to save Earth for future generations. Major progress was made to try to explain the problem to the public and then to formulate a solution, and, and yet we failed. In a New York Times piece called Losing Earth, Rich attempts to understand why and how. The story starts in 1979. A political lobbyist named Rafe Pomerantz reads a report describing how the continued use of fossil fuels would bring about significant, damaging changes to the global atmosphere. So a terrified Pomerantz goes to alert Capitol Hill about the bad news. Their first thought is that, well, surely if we explain the problem and and what's at stake to the elders of government, then surely they will take action. Um, They'll have no choice. Instead, President Ronald Reagan comes in, opens up public land to mining and drilling. Then in 1985, there's a shift. Ozone in the news. 
satellite photos show that a hole opens in the ozone layer for a few months during Antarctica's springtime. Lo and behold, the Reagan administration proposes a reduction in CFC emissions by 95 percent. Then comes 1988, the hottest and driest summer in U.S. history. There was new science that had come forward that had shown that the problem was much greater than anyone had even feared. In the way that the ozone hole was being discussed, it, it, certainly in the public eye, was the sky had ripped open and the sun was blazing through and that we'd all get skin cancer and go blind. It was an image that people could visualize. Um, it wasn't nearly as abstract, it was far more immediate. Uh, and this, the remedy was a lot easier. And all this urgency seemed to help the cause, at least at first. By this point, climate change is considered nonpartisan. Even major oil companies have studied the problem and possible solutions, like in this video from Shell. Global warming is not yet certain, but many think that to wait for final proof would be irresponsible. Action now is seen as the only safe insurance. President George H.W. Bush declared, those who think we are powerless to do anything about the greenhouse effect, forget about the White House effect. 32 climate bills are introduced to Congress. Leaders around the world are poised to sign a global agreement to reduce greenhouse emissions. Until Bush's chief of staff convinces Washington that all this talk about global warming is bogus. And Washington doesn't push back. I think we obsess over our present generation, our present well-being. I think we care deeply about the next generation. I think we care less deeply about the two generations after that. And beyond that, I think we have very little interest. And that, says Nathaniel Rich, was the beginning of the end. The oil and gas industry had mobilized and started their decades-long propaganda effort and the Republican Party had adopted as a kind of central tenant of uh, Republicanism, climate denialism. 30 years later, Rich says, not much has changed, even as the current generation experiences the effects of a changing climate. The line tends to be, see, now that climate change is at our doors, now that the flames are licking at our patio and the water is rising up the driveway, now surely you have to take this seriously. There are millions and millions of people whose lives aren't in imminent danger. But he says, if we want to stop climate change, we need to push it as a moral issue. Not simply we need to protect future generations, but because it is the ethical thing to do, because it is consistent with our deepest values and it is consistent with our highest view of ourselves. Even if we do keep global warming down to two degrees, we still lose the world's tropical reefs, the sea level still rises several meters, and the Persian Gulf is still gone. And scientists say that's the best case scenario, a goal to push for. It's scientifically and technologically possible, but human nature will likely get in the way. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music. Thank you for listening. Thank you for thinking. And thank you for supporting Philosophy Talk. Next Sunday, February 17th, come and be a part of a live recording of Philosophy Talk at the Marsh Theatre in San Francisco. At 12 o'clock, Neural Engineering Beyond the Five Senses with neuroscientist David Eagleman. Then at 3 o'clock, Authority and Resistance with political scientist James Martell. Tickets for either show are available at philosophytalk.org. That's next Sunday, February 17th. Philosophy Talk, live at the Marsh. <laughs>